Thank you, Mike, and thank you, worship team. Pastor Benjamin is away at a conference where he'll be sharing and participating, so be in prayer for him. That's um, a big deal, and we're grateful that God brought him to us. A couple things that I would like to invite you to um, join me. First of all, if you'll pray with us, our teens are away this weekend, about 50 of them are away for a retreat with Jeremy. So let's be in prayer for them. Many, many young people have been strengthened in their faith or made some big decisions when they get away from it all. So, um, and those of you parents who are like, it's just a blessing to have them away for the weekend. Um, so we'll pray for them. And then also I want to mention two other things. The Kids Club, the registration's open for the Wednesday Night Kids Club. And then if you'll notice this, um, it says the Riverstone Institute. Now don't let the word institute scare you. It's not college, it's not you know, intimidating, it's a study of the book of 2 Timothy. And keep it very, very straightforward, verse by verse. Those of you that want homework, you can have it, but it's not designed that way. It's just an opportunity to come out. Pastor John will be teaching, and then you'll break out into small groups. So that's coming up on October 2nd. So be in prayer about that. If you're connected with something else, we're not trying to pull you away from that, but we're grateful that God has gifted John to teach. All right, this morning we're going to begin a new study after we pray. Father, help us to give thanks in all of our circumstances. We're grateful today for our salvation. We're grateful for your love. And we thank you for all of the children and young people that come to this church. We know, Father, that most people that give their lives to Christ do so before they're 18. So we pray for a, a great work of the Holy Spirit in our children's ministry in our youth ministry, and especially for parents as they're trying to raise their children for the Lord. Father, we know that we fight against Satan and the world, the devil's power and his temptations and our own flesh. So give parents wisdom and strength, and I pray today that your Holy Spirit will work through Jeremy and all of the, the ministries that are down there. May they really grow today, and I ask for your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name that you'll advance the gospel here. Be with our children's workers. Thank you for those who have volunteered to step up and help with our children. We pray for continued blessing on them in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank those of you who were willing to step up, as we mentioned last week, but we still need some more workers, both for Sunday school and for setting up chairs. So um, hope, hope that you could join us. Okay, we're beginning a new book today, the book of James. So if you're with us for the first time, perfect. You're, you're just in time. You got here at the opening gate. One of the things that we believe is that Christians should, can, and ought to read their Bible on a regular basis. You don't just come to church to hear a little homily, but Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Many of you may not have come from a church where you, you've been reading the Bible, but at this point we have some folks coming forward. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to give you a Bible, or if you just want to borrow it, but you're welcome to keep this Bible. But one of the things that we were passionate about is if you're going to be a disciple of Christ is to learn how to read the Bible on your own. And so weirdly, somehow people look at the Bible like this Ouija board of some sort where you just open it and you just read something right in the middle. We don't do that with anything else. You don't do that with magazines. You don't do that with the newspaper. You find the article, you begin at the first sentence, and you read it through to the end. So if you haven't learned how to do that, I want to encourage you that that's such an important way to read the Bible. It's not the only way. But if you're just jumping all around, you'll never really learn how to understand the Bible. So you just take a book. Now, when you take a book, it's important 
to try to get some background. Imagine going to a bookstore in which you, you saw all these books and they had no covers, they were all white. There's no words on them. There's, there's no table of contents, there's no preface, no page numbers, and, and you're just like, what am I reading? Is this a history book? Is it a novel? What's it about? Is it fiction? Is it, is it narrative? So, same thing with the book of the Bible. It's really helpful to just learn a little bit about the background. It's not scary, it's not for scholars. The easiest way is to have a study Bible. If you don't have a study Bible, we can recommend some. We have some for sale. We don't make any money on them, but we're trying to help you. So as you begin a, a study of a book of the Bible, you want to ask some questions. Who wrote it? Who was it written to? What's the background? Then when you're reading it, you'll at least go, just like watching a trailer before a movie. Hey, what's this about before I start? So I've called this study James a litmus test of faith. Now, those of you who remember chemistry class, you're still in therapy trying to get over it. Remember litmus paper, you dipped it and, and then you tested the pH. So I want you to think about our Christian faith. There's a lot of people that claim to have faith, okay? What James does is he's going to press home the application and say, all right, if your faith is real, let's look at it in this area. If your faith is growing, how are you doing in this area? Because it's easy to have faith if it's out there pie in the sky. But James is very practical. So let's begin by, by just briefly asking the question, who was this guy, James? Well, there's, there's no way to know for sure, but many Bible scholars believe that this is James the Lord's brother, the one that wasn't a believer during Jesus' life. It wasn't until after Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says he appeared to his brother James, which if, if this is his brother, all the more fascinating that he never brags about that, like, yo, I'm Jesus' bro, so you should really listen to me. He just calls himself a servant of Christ. Now, how does the book of James, this book, fit into the New Testament? If you're not familiar with the New Testament, the books are not in order that they were written. They're, they're not chronological, okay? They're grouped into sets. So the first five books of the New Testament are more, more what we would call narrative, like they're long, lengthy descriptions of events. So the first four Gospels, and you're, you're familiar, Matthew, Mark, St. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. These, are, these aren't really letters, these are like narratives, but the Holy Spirit led these guys to write the life of Christ and the ministry of the early church. But then the rest of the Bible is basically a series of letters, the next 13 letters in our, in our New Testament are Paul's letters, Romans through the book of Philemon. And Paul's letters are not in chronological order either. They're, they're, they're put in there by length. But even Paul's letters, some of them were written to churches, some of them were written to individuals. But, but just think of these narrative books, Paul's letters, and then the next eight books are called the general letters. Some people call them the Catholic letters, not Roman Catholic, but... These have a more general audience. So you have the book of Hebrews and James and 1st and 2nd Peter and Jude and 1st, 2nd and 3rd John. So think of this grouping as these general letters because they're not written to a specific church. They have a general audience. And then finally, the book of Revelation, and we'll talk about that down the road. So just James is one of the general epistles. Often it's considered to be the earliest New Testament writing, perhaps the first book that was written in the New Testament. Who was he writing to? Well, I want you to look with me in James chapter 1. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Now, 
the word here is the Greek word diaspora. And, and we use that in English. Some of you may have never heard of that, but the diaspora was a term that was used of the, the Jewish people who had been scattered out of Jerusalem all over the Eastern world. So James is addressing his letter primarily to Jewish people. However, what makes these Jewish people different is that these Jewish people have made a profession of faith in Jesus as Messiah. Why, why did James feel the need to write this book? What, what did he have in mind here? Now, I'm going to come back to that, but as you're reading, as you look at things, you go, hmm, this must have been on his mind. How did he know they were having problems with this? What did he want to encourage them? What did he want to address? And we'll come back to that, but you can begin to read the book of James. I encourage you, it'll probably take you 20 minutes to read through the book of James, and then when you get done, try reading it again. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit will show you things and put things together. So the big picture, the main theme of the book, as I mentioned, is this litmus test of faith, and we're going to come back to that. I'm going to give you some reasons James wrote in just a moment. We're going to talk about some of the primary topics. What does he address? And then one of the questions that I want to address briefly is, why does the gospel seem absent in James? He never once talks about the, Jesus dying for our sins and rising again. It seems as though there's not much of an emphasis on God's grace, but that's because James had a very practical issue in mind, and that is he's transitioning Old Testament believers right into this new covenant. When Jesus came, he brought a new covenant. And so James is familiar with living under the law of Moses, and he gets it that you're not saved by keeping the law, but now he's transitioning into the new covenant. And so the Holy Spirit did not see fit to use James to talk about grace and the gospel. It's not like James didn't believe in that. And there are some hints he calls the, the law, the law of liberty. But what I want us to talk about now is just some of the basic themes why James wrote his book. So number one, and, and you, if you're taking notes here, I'm just going to give you some verses, but as you're reading it, there were the, the people that he was writing to were experiencing trials and suffering, okay? So these people were not in a good place, okay? In chapter five, he says, if any of you are suffering, call on the Lord. Now, we're going to come back to that word trial in a minute, but their trials, much of them had to do with their, their substance, Many of them were really poor, and they were struggling just to put food on the table. Now, those of us who have never been in that experience probably have to think a little bit more about what it would be like to literally wonder where your next meal is coming from, particularly when there are people around you who are really wealthy. And then add to that, it appears in the book of James that these wealthy people were oppressing the poor. Good thing that doesn't happen anymore, right? So, he's writing to believers who were really getting a beating from wealthy people. They were being persecuted by the Jewish people who had not given their lives to Christ. But unfortunately, we have an opportunity when we go through difficulties to get better or to get bitter. And some of the things that happen when bad things happen to us is we can get angry. We can get jealous we can get mean, we can get difficult, we can, we can be disillusioned with God. So as James is writing, he's showing these people, listen, I know you're going through trials, but, but anger is not going to help. So he's going to tell us in this book, you need to learn how to be quick to hear, 
slow to speak, slow to anger, because anger is not going to achieve God's righteousness. And there's some jealous confrontations in the book, and people are mad at each other, and, and James is going, we need to work on how we handle difficulties. But he also wants to change the worldview of poor believers. These, these believers who were poor had a really poor self-image. They, 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 they had been treated poorly and, and scoffed. Maybe some of you who were picked on in school. You know, you don't just get over that. You don't just suddenly have this really positive self-image. And so James is trying to help them to go, listen, if you're poor, you're really rich because you're a believer. You have a high position with God. So don't look around and go, gosh, because I'm poor and insignificant that, man, I'm a piece of trash and nobody cares about me and I'm not worth much and I don't know if God cares about me. But he also wants to warn and rebuke rich unbelievers. Apparently he's, he's thinking that some of the rich unbelievers are visiting these meetings and he goes, he says to the rich man in chapter five, come now you rich people who keep oppressing the poor. You should weep and howl because misery is coming upon you. You had these poor people mow your fields and you didn't pay them, but God has heard their cry and wrath is coming upon you. And so there's some really strong rebukes. There's nothing wrong with being rich, but he's going to talk about the difficulties of what happens when you pursue riches and the temptations of being rich to oppress the poor and to mistreat them. But he also wants to show the relationship between faith and works of charity. See, here's something that, that people were struggling with. The haves saw no obligation to share with the have-nots. I mean, hey, I worked hard. This is my stuff. So if I come across someone who is in need, that's not my problem. That's their problem. They should have got a job. They shouldn't just be begging. Not that that happens anymore. But James says in chapter 2, hey, if you say you have Christian faith, but you see a Christian brother and he, he needs basic things like food and clothing, and you say to him, hey man, I'll pray for you, go in peace. James says, what kind of faith is that? That's a dead faith. That's not a real faith. Christian faith helps poor people. And he's going to challenge us as wealthy Bucks County people for the most part to go, what, what are you doing by way of charity and helping those in need? He also wants to clarify that the tongue is a great indicator of our true spiritual condition before God. We all have, have an opportunity to evaluate, what do you think God thinks of you, right? And sometimes people have too high of an estimation. Well, I think, you know, I read my Bible every day. I go to church. I'm in a Bible study. I witness to people. In fact, I don't go down to the shelter. I, I, I adopted orphans. I mean, I'm doing some really good stuff. And James goes, that's really cool. But if you think you're religious and you can't bridle your tongue, your religion is worthless. That's what he says. So what he's going to do, and it's convicting because he's going to go, you can talk the talk, you can tell everybody, and you can sing to Jesus, but, but the way that you and I talk during the week, when, when we're in conflict with someone, if we're losing it, James goes, you might want to figure that you're not quite as spiritual as you think you are. But then he's going to show us how that, well, how do I handle it? I'm really mad at my spouse. Why do I have conflicts with other people? And he goes, well, I'll tell you what it is. What is the source of your conflicts? He goes, it's because you want something and you can't get it. And when somebody gets in your way and you can't get what you want, oh, heaven help them. 
And this is what I see often in relationships. Oh, I'm so in love. I love them. I love them. Oh, and, and you're not in love. You don't love them because you're not patient and gentle and selfless. You love what they bring to you. But the moment they deny you of that, whether it's intimacy or praise or honor, suddenly you're like, I hate them. You're like, well, think about it. What's the source of your conflict? Somebody's withholding something that you want. And once you can't get it, then you're angry. And then also, James is going to instruct us in the necessity and value of prayer. He has a lot to say about prayer. He says, if you don't ask in faith, you're not going to receive anything from God. He says, if you ask in chapter 4, sometimes you don't have because you didn't pray about it. But he also says, sometimes you pray about stuff and you don't get it because you asked with selfish motives. But then in chapter 5, he says, but I'll tell you this much, the effectual fervent prayer of righteous men can really accomplish a lot. If anyone's sick, let him call for the elders and let them pray over him. So James is going to challenge us and help us to think about prayer. So this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11, and we're going to talk about faith's response to trials and temptations. So I want to start by helping you understand, if you've never heard this, what is a trial, okay? When you learn the Christian terminology, you know, you go, I hear people talk about trials, okay? Trials are painful circumstances. If, if, if you won the lottery, that might be a temptation or something, but, you know, when good things happen, that's not a trial. So trials are difficulties. God designed difficulties. They're not accidents. God didn't go, oh, man, I took my eye off them, and look what happened, right? These are God-designed designed difficulties, Okay? But they're called trials, they're not called difficulties, because the word trial literally means to be a test. In other words, they're not just God's going to give you difficulty, but he says, I'm giving you this difficulty because I want to test your faith. Why would God want to test my faith? What, does he not know? Does he go, well, I'll be, look at Tom, he did better than I thought. So it's not so much for him to figure out our condition, it's for us to see our condition. But, but the key here is that trials are, are God-designed, but they have a purpose to produce Christian maturity. The reason God lets bad things happen to us in this book is so that we will grow as Christians. So this morning, some of you are experiencing health trials. It's a terrifying thing to hear the word cancer. Some of you are experiencing emotional trials, depression, anxiety, fears, loneliness, doubts. Some of you are experiencing financial trials. You're like, man, I, I just, I lost my job, or I don't know how we're going to provide. Some of you may be experiencing relational trials. Your marriage is extremely difficult. Or you have a child that has made some really poor decisions. Or some of you... God be merciful, you've lost a loved one. I, I can't imagine losing a child or losing a spouse. Life is full of trials, difficulties. We look around, we're, we're fearful of what's going to happen to our country. But at the end of the day, what we're going to learn is that God has designed for us to respond to trials in this appropriate way. And so in verses 1 through 11, we're going to look at the proper response to trials. Now, Next week, we're going to talk about the proper response to temptations. It's the same word, but words can have more than one meaning, and the context determines the meaning. So 
the first thing we're going to look at, I'm going to skip over the rest of the outline because we'll come to that later, but this is where we are today. And if you're taking some notes, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. The first thing God's going to tell us in verses 1 through 4 is that when you go through trials, he wants us to rejoice. He wants us to actually thank him, which, which makes no sense. Dear God, you actually want me to thank you that the car got wrecked and that I have to go to physical therapy? So let's look at verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now here we have it. Consider it all joy. Consider it all joy. Now, that's an interesting word when he says consider it. That word to consider means to engage in an intellectual process, to think about it, okay? So pause, look at the trouble in front of you and stop for a moment and, and, and think about it. Why is this happening, okay? He says, consider it all joy. Why, why would I consider this a good thing? Why would I be thanking God for something that I don't like in my life? Well, he says, when you encounter what? When you encounter various trials. Now, again, this trial is, is to, to test. But when he says encounter here, this is an interesting word. It, this word can be translated when you strike against or when you fall into, okay? So you, it's kind of like on a surfboard. You're doing just fine, and then suddenly you fall off, and now you're tumbling in the, in the waves. And he goes, whenever, and by the way, this is why I tell people, you don't have to pray for trials. Don't pray for trials. You're going to. It doesn't say if. It says when you encounter. And it's interesting that he uses the word various trials. Trials are diversified. The word means manifold. There's all different kinds of trials. I've given you some examples. Maybe some of you out there saying, you didn't even mention my trial, you know. And, and only God knows how many different trials. Some of you may be struggling with sexual orientation or some terrible thing that happened to you in the past, you were abused or whatever. There's no end to the various shades and colors and flavors of trials. But James says, look, we're all going to encounter them and God wants us to stop and actually consider that these are, these are not all bad. There's a value to them. Well, how? He goes, because you know. See, that's the key, verse 3. Because you know something about these trials. God's not just throwing rocks at you. But knowing that these trials are the testing of your faith. The testing of your faith. If you want to know how strong you are, right, you can't look at a weight and go, oh, I could lift that. I don't know. There's a bunch of barbells there. Well, how, how much do you think you can lift? I don't know. So the only way is to experience it. So God goes, as you're going along in life, this is part of the Christian experience. I'm going to allow bad things to happen to you. And we need to teach people that right from the beginning, as soon as you're Christian, whoever told you that God wants you to be happy and healthy and everything going great, that's not what the Bible teaches. So it's okay to go, why are, why are things falling apart in my life? Well, God says, know that my purpose behind them is to give you a test. But notice what he says. So he says, these trials produce endurance. Trials cause something else to happen inside of us. They achieve something. They're purposeful. They're not random. Well, what's God trying to teach me? Well, he's trying to produce in you, notice this word, endurance. Some Bibles say patience. 
That word means bearing up in difficulties, steadfast, having fortitude. So patience you're not born with. Patience is something that develops. And the way that it develops is not through reading a book and just doing a Bible study. It's by experiencing difficulty. And at the first difficulty, if you're ready to collapse and you go, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Look at your troubles a very different way. Look at them as, if, if I allow God to work in my life, they're going to make me stronger. Because there's an awful lot of Christians who have quit, right? Used to be's. I used to go to church every Sunday. I used to try to read my Bible. Yeah, I, I tried that small group. I, used to, I went to the 12-step the stuff, and, I, and it didn't work for me, right? I have people say that all the time. It didn't work for me. I tried that, and it didn't work for me. I'm going, to oh, wait a minute. What do you mean it didn't work? Did Jesus fail? So, so God's goal is that as I go through difficulties, over time I'm becoming stronger in my faith. I'm becoming more settled. I'm becoming more steady. I'm not losing it every time a trouble comes. I'm learning to, to look ahead. You know, the experiences my wife and I went through with, with our son, and he'll freely tell his testimony, those were very painful. The experiences I've had in my own personal life with depression, those were very painful, but as I look back, I'm like, wow, God, I'm so grateful for the things that have come into my life as a result of that. And so James says, but here's what we have to do. You have to let this endurance have its perfect result. Well, what is, what is it going to lead to? He says, you are going to be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what's interesting? That word translated complete means intact, blameless, whole, but it also can mean undamaged, right? It's so weird to think about that. We start out damaged, and then God allows difficulties to help us to become undamaged. You're like, wait a minute, it should be the other way around. But think about a diamond. It starts out with a rock, and you got to chip away at it to bring out the beauty. So I read, I read an interesting illustration of this. Um, if you remember seeing these ships with that long, high wooden mast, right? Where do they get the wood for that? They don't just go to the forest and say, find us a tall, skinny one. That one will do. They actually look for trees that are near the top of mountains or any trees that have been exposed to a lot of wind. Because over the, the years, these trees have a capacity to give and, and, and to bear up under wind, right? And so these trees are more suited for mass that are going to be exposed and the sails tugging on them. In the same way, just, just step back and say, what is God doing? The place is falling apart. He's going, no, it's not falling apart at all. These things that you're going through right now are, are helping you to become complete and mature. And, and, and I love this, lacking in nothing, right? It's almost funny, like, so... So as, 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 as you think about your spouse, as you have a spouse, think about all the qualities that you love about your spouse. But then go, would you use this phrase, they lack nothing, right? Probably not. They're like, well, I wouldn't mind if they had a little bit, you know. And believe me, they're thinking the same thing. So, it's, so, so the point is, none of us are lacking in nothing yet, but that's our goal, to become more like Jesus. So, so think of it this way. If you try to put a puzzle together, without the box, 
It's crazy, right? God's goal, I'm going to show you the box. God's goal for you and me is to become like Jesus in very practical, tangible ways, right? The Bible says he's conforming us to the image of our, his son. His greatest goal is not your happiness, it's our personal holiness, that we are growing to become like Jesus in how we think, how we talk, what we do with our money, our values, our recreation, our whole mindset. His goal is to make us like Christ. But here's the deal. Have you ever put together a puzzle and at the end a couple pieces were missing? Right? And it's frustrating because you're going, where are they? Right? And you, you know, you got three options. Either Fluffy the dog ate it, right? The children, you know, put it in their oatmeal. Or you should have known better when you bought the puzzle at the thrift store. Yeah, they told you. They, they said all the pieces are still in it, right? But at the end of the day, think of your Christian experience. If you haven't been through trouble, are you really mature enough to minister to others? So there's no other way to get those pieces into the wholeness of Christ. It's not just God gives us trouble. That's the only way to become like Christ. But it's one that we have to have. So James says, so, so there you go. Rejoice in your trials. So this morning, as we close, you're going to think about a trouble you're going through, and you're going to say, God, I don't like it. I wish you would have taken it away or take me out of it, but I'm going to accept it because I see what you're doing. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing James is going to tell us to do is, but we need to request God's wisdom, knowing God's power. Now, now I want to show you something here. In verse 5, depending on your translation, a number of translations like the ESV and NIV do not translate the word but. Okay, I think it's really important. In the Greek text, the word but is there. And, and, and so don't think of what James is saying here as disconnected to what he just said. Okay? James is not like the book of Proverbs where one minute he's talking about wisdom and foolishness. The next minute he's talking about correcting your children. The next minute he's talking about hard work. So there's a connection. James is going, rejoice in your trials. But we all know that. We know now that we're supposed to do that. But that's the easy part. So when he says, request God's wisdom, I want to explain exactly what he's saying. He goes, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, for years, I I thought that all James was saying here is, just ask God for the ability to understand what's going on, okay? So, God, I don't know why these bad things are happening, but, okay, help me understand why. And that's where I stopped. I thought it was simply an intellectual change of mind. But there's a couple of things I want you to think about, and this, this kind of, the Lord seemed to direct me to think more deeply about wisdom here. Number one, the word wisdom itself is not just the ability to understand, but it's also the ability to function properly. Okay, so when you're asking God, Lord, this is hard, this spouse is difficult, this kid is difficult, this boss is difficult, you're not just asking God, help me to understand, you're saying, God, help me to function properly, help me to behave like Jesus. See, we often take this verse, ask for wisdom, oh, I don't know if I should work in this job or at that job, well, that's fine, you can ask for wisdom, but here he's saying, when you're going through difficulty, ask God for the capacity to understand and then function accordingly, okay? So you might go, well, how do I know? I asked him for wisdom, and I've been going through these trials. Well, look over in chapter 3, because James says, I'll tell you what that wisdom will look like. 
here's a way whether you can tell whether you're getting this very practical, powerful, functional wisdom. James says in verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? And I can imagine a number of the believers there going, well, I, I don't like to brag, but I mean, <laughs> if you're asking, <laughs> I mean, I really know my Bible, right? He goes, great, let's, let's think about this. Well, then if you are wise, you will be showing your good behavior, by your good behavior, your deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. See, J James is not saying wisdom is just, well, he can divide the baby like Solomon. He's really smart. He's going, if you're wise, your wisdom is very practical. Now, he says, however, think about your, your, you who are so wise. He goes, do you have bitter jealousy? Do you have selfish ambition in your heart? You want it your way. You want to get to the top. He goes, well, then do yourself a favor. Don't be arrogant because you're not wise. It's because you know the Bible. He says, you're not wise if you're like this. He says, let me tell you what wisdom that is. That's not what comes down from above, but it's earthly, natural. It's demonic. For where you're jealous and you have selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil thing. So imagine this. James goes, can I come into your house and look how you engage with your family members? And you're like, I'm the only one that goes to church and reads the Bible around here. Now you guys need to stop it. And if you would be more like Jesus, like I'm trying. And James goes, could we talk for a minute? He goes, if that's how you're acting, he goes, don't kid yourself. So when we're going through troubles, how we respond to other people, how we respond to God, that's functional, practical wisdom. And we need to ask God, Lord, I know I'm supposed to, my mom used to share this verse with me. I, I would call my mom and say, Mom, you know, could you pray about this as God? She goes, now remember, James says, consider it all joy. And I'm like, that's not what I wanted to hear right now, right? <laughs> so look, look how he describes true wisdom. The wisdom from above, it's not just intellectual. Look, he says, it's pure, it's peaceable. Does this describe the way you interact with people? Gentle, reasonable. So the opposites might be cranky, sharp, proud, divisive. Are you full of mercy and good fruits? Has your spouse ever forgotten something and you're like, you need to pay attention. And then, and then you realize, oh yeah, I forgot something the other day. Are you merciful to others? Are you unwavering and without hypocrisy? Are you a peacemaker? So, so you see where James is going with this. In chapter one, he goes, I get it. Nobody likes to go through trouble. And, and I don't even necessarily like to rejoice, but if I stop and think about it, I'm like, God, I know what you're doing here. You're trying to make me like Jesus. But he says, but if you lack wisdom, this functional power to understand and respond properly, ask God. Now, go back to chapter one, because I love what he says about God here. I love this. He says, ask God, but then look how he describes God. God is a God who gives to all men generously. That's what God does. He, he loves to give. He's the God who gives. Now, this word generously means sincerely, openly, without reservation, without having second thoughts. Some of you, you pull out a $10 bill and you're dropping it into the plate and you're going, wish I had a five, right? So, so God doesn't go, well, all right, I'll give it to you. 
But just think of that. That's how God is. God is a loving Father. Jesus wants us to believe this. Jesus said, your heavenly Father delights to give good things. That's what God does. And he doesn't go, fine, I'll give you a little bit and let's see what you do with it. And then he says, not only does he give without reservation, but he gives it without reproach. That word means to mock or insult or shame you. So unlike us, we come to God and we say, God, I haven't been really responding well to this trial or this difficulty in my life. Help me to do better. God doesn't go, what'd you do with the wisdom I asked you for yesterday? You, you squandered that. How long are we going to be on this cycle? He's not like that. He's so gracious. He's like, okay, I'm not going to shame you. Keep coming to me. If you fall down, get up. Pray about it again. That's how God is. He's not like us, and I love that. Just think of God as you pray this week. He's up there wanting to give you good things. Now, don't even waste your time asking him to win the lottery, because James says, don't ask with selfish motives. But he delights to give good things generously without shaming us. And then he says, and it will be given to him. However, James is going to put a qualifier, but let him ask in faith without any doubting. Now that word doubting means to be uncertain, to be at odds with yourself, to be wavering. I'll give you an example. Sometimes we ask God to give us strength to change, but we're not even really sure we want to change. And all we need is somebody to push our button, and man, we're gone off. We're not really fully engaged in wanting to change. And when people say, oh, I can't stop this sin, I'm going, wait a minute, is it that you can't stop? Or how committed are we to stopping? How committed are we to changing? At the, at the slightest aggression or conflict, see, see. So, so, so when you're asking God, he goes, don't be this double-minded, unwavering person. I don't even know if God is listening, and I don't even know if I really want to do this. He said, ask in faith without doubting. And it's okay to struggle with that. I love the story of the man in, 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 in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus says, you know, if you ask me, I could heal your son. And he goes... He goes, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Okay, cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to trust you. I've tried this, it didn't work, but I'm coming back to you because I know you're good and I know you're hearing me. And he says, don't doubt because if you doubt, you're going to be like, like the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. All over the place, all over the map. One day you're, I love the Lord, the next day, I don't know if I believe this stuff. One day you want to read the Bible, the next day you're like, ah, I don't want to read the Bible. James is like, learn to ask God for wisdom, but ask him with an attitude where you're like, I know my dad's going to give me this, because I know he wants me to have it. I believe him, and I trust him. Because if you don't, James is simply saying, save the oxygen. Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man. A double-minded man. What does he mean by that? Unstable, restless, in all of his actions, all over the place, right? You go, yeah, sometimes that describes me. Well, James, James isn't beating you down. He's saying, listen, we could change that. Later in the book, James is going to talk about what it looks like to be double-minded. But this is supposed to encourage us. I remember once I was praying with someone, and, and in the middle of the prayer, they just stopped. They went, dear Lord, I nearly... Never mind, it just doesn't feel like he's even listening. 
And you got two options there. In some ways, you go, all right, let's read this passage. If that's going to be your attitude, I don't even think he's listening. James is like, well, I can guarantee you this. He's not. In this respect, he's not going to answer a prayer that you totally are just like, I don't even know if he cares. And so he says, we ask in faith. Even in the weakness of prayer, we say, Lord, help me to trust you. This is really hard. I thought it was going to be over. But we ask in faith, expecting and believing. You say, okay. So, so I got this. So I have to thank God for these troubles. And I need to learn to pray for functional wisdom where I know his power is going to help me to be gentle and trust him and not freak out on everybody else. But then there's a third thing. The third thing he asks us to do, and this is where we'll wind down today. I suppose to say 11. Sorry about that. It's, he's going to tell us to remember eternity in our trials. See, one of the reasons that we freak out is because we're thinking too short term. We're thinking about right now and my circumstances, and I want them to change. And James is going, look a little bit further. Okay, so contextually, the trial that a lot of these believers were experiencing is most of the believers were poor. And they're getting ripped off by these by these rich people. They're getting taken to court by these rich people. They're being oppressed by these rich people, and they're mad at them, right? And so look what James does. Because again, in the context here, this is not just, oh, let me talk about something else. He says, but let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. What does he mean by the brother of humble circumstances? The word translated humble circumstances means someone of low social status, somebody who's almost unable to cope. He's undistinguished. He's the little guy. He's of no account. But notice what he calls him, the brother. He goes, if you're a brother, because when he talks about the rich man, this guy's not a brother. But he says, if you're out there and I'm writing to you and you're upset because of your your social status and your struggles. He goes, you need to change your outlook. You need to learn how to glory in your high position. He's going, what are you talking about? I don't have a high position. I'm at the lowest. And he goes, not in God's sight. In God's sight, the poorest Christian is a million times more wealthy than the richest non-Christian. And so he's saying, look long term. And yet the poor guy's going, I have to walk five miles to work. And look, that rich guy's got a Lexus gold chariot. It ain't fair. It ain't right. But look what he says. He says, if you're a a believer, though you may have very little materially, you have unspeakable riches because you have Christ. And and there's going to be a reversal that's unbelievable when Jesus comes back. The poor man's going to be lifted high and the proud are going to be brought down. So he goes, look, be glad if you're at the bottom of the wrong, because in God's sight, if you're a believer, he doesn't view you that way. Does it really matter what your neighbors think of you? Does it matter if they look down on you or the people at work, or you're too dumb, or, 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 or you're just a castaway? And sometimes the devil will tell you that. You're a loser. You shouldn't even be here. What are you doing with all these good Christians who have their act together? Please. Really? We're all a mess. Right? But notice how he, 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 he turns it now. He goes, now... If you're a rich man and you're listening to this, James does not hate rich people. But what he hates is rich people who are selfish and indulgent and they have no time for God. Jesus talked a lot about this, right? He'd say it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
Jesus would hammer rich people who had no time for God. He said, let me tell you a story about a rich man. He had so much stuff, he stocked it all up for retirement. He said, man, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry because this is awesome. And, and Jesus says, you know what happened to that guy? That night, the Lord said to him, your soul is required of you, you fool. Now what are you going to do with all your stuff? You're going to put it on a, on a, put a U-Haul on the back of the hearse because you weren't rich towards God. So what he's challenging us, he's not saying it's a sin to be rich. But he says, if you are rich, then ask yourself, what, what are you living for? Are you living for more money? Is your pursuit, is your goal to get, to get, to stockpile, to acquire, to get another house, to get more possessions? Because he says, think about it. That is such a dead end. Look how he words it. He says, let the rich man glory in his humiliation. And that word literally means to experience a reversal in fortunes. You're coming down, pal. If you're a godless person who's just living to make money, you're on your way down. Now, he's obviously being ironic. He's not saying, boast about that, right? Why? He says, because think about it, rich man. Like flowering grass, you're going to pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off. So you're like, oh, look at this beautiful rose. It's precious, yeah? We'll leave it out in the sun for a few days, right? He says, in the same way, the rich man in the midst of his what? His pursuits. That's the key. The rich man in the midst of his lifestyle. The rich man in the midst of his undertakings. His time and his values. He goes, that's such a dead end. So, so the point here is, remember eternity's values. And every one of us as a Christian has to go, when's enough enough? Right? And if you're not a Christian and your main goal is to go, I just need to get more stuff, can I ask you to get off that Ferris wheel quickly and just give your life to Christ? And so whatever you're going through, this is what the psalmist said in Psalm 73. He said, God, I try to live for you and you beat me up all the time. I know people who could care less about you and their life is going fine. But then the psalmist said, but then I thought about their latter end. I forgot. I was a fool. I forgot. One day Jesus is coming back. And so if you're all worried, why is my life so messed up? If you're a Christian, God's making you like Jesus. And he's not concerned with how much is in your portfolio. He's concerned with growing you and me into the image of Christ. And so this morning as we close, I want to invite you just to, let's pray through the application of this. And if, if you want to learn how to come to Christ, come and see us. We want to talk to you. We'll show you how you can find from the Bible that Jesus will forgive you. But let's bow in prayer. Just take a moment and thank God for your trials. Whatever you're going through. If you're not going through trials, rejoice. But if you are, rejoice. Thank you, Lord, for our trials that make us like Jesus. Forgive us when we haven't responded well. I pray for all of us that you'll grant us wisdom to engage in the right way with others as we struggle. And thank you for reminding us that there's another life. Help us to live for that world, not this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day. Be sure to read ahead verses 12 through 20, and we'll see you all, Lord willing, next week. Be sure to greet someone on your way out.